You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Second Kings chapter 5. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a living God who wants to speak to us today by your spirit. Lord, would you give us ears and hearts to receive your word today? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when you go to the doctor, one of the first things they do is they test your vital signs. So if you go to the doctor, one of the first things they do, they're going to take your temperature. They're going to check your blood pressure. They're going to check your heart rate. Those are your vital signs. There's actually five commonly recognized vital signs. Well, what's the, what's the purpose of checking your vital signs? The purpose of checking your vital signs is because these are outward things that can be measured, which give some insight or some indication of what's going on inside your body. They're outside things that can be measured that give an indication of what's going on inside of you. Now, right now with the coronavirus, maybe there are some of you, you have to get your vital signs checked every time you go to school, every time you go to your workplace, perhaps. And again, the reason is because our vital signs give an indication of what's going on inside of us. They're a good way to tell if everything's checking out, if you're healthy, and they're also a good way to tell if there's a problem that needs to be tended to, that needs attention, or is a matter for concern. Now, in the same way, the Bible tells us that we also have spiritual vital signs, if you will. Just as you take your temperature physically, you can also take your temperature spiritually, right? You can check your pulse spiritually to see if you are healthy or if there's possibly a reason for concern. Your attitudes actions, and behaviors. These are outward things, but they can give an indication of what's going on inside of your soul. That's why it's so useful. Now, one of the ways Jesus talked about this is in terms of fruit. Jesus talked about this in in regard to or using the term of fruit. Jesus said, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And he said that's true of trees, but it's also true of us. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, he says, look at the fruit of your life. Look at the fruit of your life and ask yourself the question, what kind of attitudes, what kind of behaviors are found in my life? What kind of things characterize my life? It isn't that your actions somehow make you right before God. Your actions don't justify you before God. What your actions do, your actions, attitudes, behaviors, they're like spiritual vital signs, which you can look at, and they give you an indication of either spiritual health or perhaps spiritual sickness. Now, how many of you have ever walked by an apple tree and you just heard it grunting so hard? It's just, ugh or a pear tree, or a peach tree. You walk by, and it's just, right? And then pop, right? The fruit comes out. No, of course not. That's not how fruit works. Apple trees, pear trees, peach trees, they don't have to try hard. They don't have to strive. They don't have to strain in order to produce fruit. Fruit is what they naturally produce when they're healthy. Now, I have two fruit trees in my yard. They're both apple trees. They're kind of on opposite sides of my front yard. And one of them is healthy, and the other one is sick. In fact, I've been, like, chopping parts of it off for the last several years. It's super ugly, and it's growing in all kinds of weird directions because it's still hanging on. I'm trying to nurse it back to health. But it's sick. And the way that you can tell that these trees, uh, the one's sick and the other one's not, 
well, first of all, you can look at the one and see that it's sick, but also the fruit that it produces is like weird and withered. Whereas the healthy tree, it's producing great apples all the time, dropping them all over my yard. And then I run over them with my lawnmower. You guys know this one. And then you open up the thing on the side of your lawnmower that, that shoots things out. And you try and see if you can shoot the, shoot the apples all the way across the street. It's my favorite. The point is, fruit for a tree is a vital sign of, of the health. It's an indicator of health or sickness of that tree. And Jesus says the same is true of you and your life as an individual. So how do you take your spiritual temperature? Well, here's how. By looking at the fruit of your life, your attitudes, your actions, your behaviors. And as you do that, you will see if there are reasons to be encouraged or if there are reasons to be concerned. If there are signs of life, or if there might be signs of sickness. Now, but listen, if you do that and you say, well, I'm looking at my life and I don't like what I see, right? It's not good. There, there's the, the signs all indicate that there's something's wrong here, that there's a reason for concern. I want you to take hope today. Here's why. I've got good news for you. Your story isn't over yet. You can still do something about it. You can act. The situation's not hopeless. You're not stuck in that sick situation. You're not doomed to be in that forever, for the rest of your life. No. Jesus said, he said, it's not the well who need a doctor, but the sick. And he said, I am that doctor. I have come to heal those who are spiritually sick. And if you see an indication in your soul, as you look at the fruit of your life, if you see an indication in your soul that something's not good, that something's not healthy, you don't need to be discouraged today. You can be hopeful because you can turn to the great physician of your soul because your story isn't over yet. So that's good news. What we're going to learn today in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 15 through 27, the second half of the chapter, looked at the first half last week, here's what we're going to see. Vital signs can reveal what's going on beneath the surface so you can act before the story is over. That's our sentence for today. That's our big idea. You can jot that down, write it down, take a photo, memorize it. That's our outline for this, this text, and it's also true. Vital signs can reveal what's going on beneath the surface so you can act now before the story is over. So let's take that sentence, and that'll be our outline as we study through this passage. Vital signs can reveal what's going on beneath the surface. Here at the end of 2 Kings chapter 5, we are going to see a contrast between two people. We're going to see two people kind of juxtaposed against each other, contrasted with each other. In the one person, we're going to see signs of life, signs of spiritual vitality. In the other person, however, we're going to see some warning signs, some indicators that something is wrong in his soul. Now, the first person is a man named Naaman. Naaman. We met Naaman in our study last week. Do you remember? We saw how Naaman had leprosy, and he was healed of leprosy. Let me remind you, just for the sake of catching up, who Naaman was. First of all, Naaman was a Syrian. He was a Syrian. He was not an Israelite. This meant that he grew up in a pagan setting, and he himself was a pagan. So keep that in mind. He's a Syrian, which means, at least in his life until this point, he's been a pagan. The second thing you need to know, he's the leader of the army of Syria. Now, at this time, the Syrians were the sworn enemies of Israel. They would often lead raids and attacks, wage war and battle against Israel. And guess who was leading those? 
Naaman was the leader of the Syrian army. So keep that in mind. The last thing you need to know about him is that he was a leper. He was successful. The Bible says that he was a great man. In fact, it uses a term of him that's only used of six people in the whole Bible. And he's the only Gentile person of whom it's used. That phrase is that he's a mighty man of valor. Naaman was a mighty man of valor. He was a great man. He was successful, highly respected, very wealthy. But you know what? At the end of the day, did any of that really matter? Because he was a leper. To be a leper in those days was a death sentence. It was an incurable disease with a 100% mortality rate. Nobody who ever got leprosy survived or recovered. There was no cure and there was no history of anybody being saved. In fact, the, the fact that Naaman was healed of leprosy, do you realize he is the only person in the entire Old Testament, the only person until the time of Jesus who was ever healed of leprosy? There was no precedent for this. And, and one of the things that we've seen in our study last week is that leprosy in the Bible is often used as a picture of sin. It's often used as a picture of sin. Why? Because what leprosy does to your body is the same as what sin does to your soul. Here's some things that leprosy does. Leprosy causes a hardening of the skin and a loss of the ability to feel. Sin does the same thing in our hearts. It causes a hardening and you lose the ability to feel. Sin also, like leprosy, it isolates you and it humiliates you until it ultimately destroys you ultimately destroys you. But Naaman heard that there was a prophet in Israel, a man named Elisha, and that God was doing great things by the hand of the prophet Elisha. And so Naaman's like, what do I got to lose? I, I've, I've got this disease that's incurable. What do I got to lose? I'll go down there and I'll see if this prophet can help me. And so Naaman went with a whole crew of people, an entourage of people, and he also went down with a whole bunch of money. In fact, he needed the people to help him take the money because the way they transported money in those days, it was super heavy. So he comes down with carts pulled by animals carrying so much money. You know how much money it is? We saw in our study last week, it was about $1.5 million in silver, in gold, in expensive items. And so Naaman travels there and he brings with him $1.5 million because he doesn't know. Maybe he's going to have to pay. He doesn't know how it works in Israel. Maybe you got to purchase your healing or purchase your miracles. So he goes down there and he's ready to pay if he needs to be, if he needs to pay in order to be healed. That's important as we'll see in our story today. But in our study last week, what we saw is that in order for Naaman to be healed, what was required was not money. It was not expensive things. No, what was required in order for Naaman to be healed was a work of God that he received by humbling himself and obeying God's word to him, doing what God told him to do in faith. And what God had told him to do through Elisha was to dip himself in the Jordan River seven times. Dip himself in the Jordan River seven times. And at first, Naaman said, I, I won't do that, right? He was like meatloaf. He's like, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. And he was like, I'll do anything to be healed, but I won't do that, right? And so he said, uh, no, that just seems weird. It's too simple. It, it's very humbling because, you know, the Jordan River is, is kind of a, a muddy creek, really. And so in spite, though, of Naaman's initial hesitation to do what God was telling him to do, Naaman finally came to the point where he decided that he was going to do what God had told him to do. And guys, let me tell you this. That is the definition of faith. 
Faith is trusting God enough to do what he says. Do you want to know if you have faith? This is, this is what it is. Trusting God enough to do what he says. Well, just as leprosy is a picture of sin, Naaman's healing from leprosy is a picture of how God heals us from our spiritual leprosy, right? The sickness in our souls. It happens as an act of God, which, which we receive as we humble ourselves and take the step of faith, of putting our faith and our trust in Jesus. But here's where we pick up the story in verse 15 of chapter 5. And here's what I want you to see. Look at Naaman's reaction to being healed of leprosy. It says there this. Then he, Naaman, returned to the man of God, that's Elisha, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. In response to the healing that he received, Naaman made a statement, a declaration, a confession of faith in this God. And he confesses that the Lord God, Yahweh, is the one true God in all the earth. Look at what else Naaman says at the end of verse 17. He says this, from now on, I will offer no burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but to the Lord. Naaman's response to the miraculous work of God in his life, this work of God's grace in his life, is that not only does he believe that the Lord is God, but he makes a commitment to worship him and him alone. He turns away from, he, he says no more to those other gods that he used to worship, the things that he used to trust in and look to for help. No, he says, from now on, I am going to worship the Lord God alone, the God who saved me, the God who healed me. I give him all of my life, all of my love, all of my devotion only to him. See, with Naaman, what we see here, this is a picture of what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is a person who has experienced a miracle of God's grace. A Christian is a person who has been healed of an incurable sickness in their soul, which would surely destroy them. And a Christian is a person who responds to that miraculous work of God by saying, God, because of what you've done for me, I now declare that you are my Lord and I give you my life, my heart, my all. Everything that I have, you have been so good to me. And because of that, I want to know you. I want to worship you and I want to worship you alone. But check out what else Naaman does. This is interesting. In response to his healing, it says at the end of verse 15, uh, Naaman says to Elisha, he says, so now accept a present from your servant. Now remember, Naaman brought with him the equivalent of $1.5 million in gold, in silver, and in expensive items. Remember, he had to bring it with like carts pulled by animals. That's how much this accumulated to, right? In, in gold and, and silver and all that. Now listen, Naaman isn't necessarily trying to purchase this healing or this miracle. The miracle has already taken place. He's already been healed at this point. What he's wanting to do right now is he's wanting to express his gratitude and, and his thankfulness to Elisha because he's so grateful. He's so glad that he's healed. And so he says, just accept a gift. I just want to bless you with a gift. But look at Elisha's response, verse 16. Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. 
Now, this is interesting because if you look down, if you're looking at your Bible and you look down, check out what it says in verse 26. Now, here's, here's, let me explain to you what happens. In verse 26, Elisha explains why he refused to accept this money. He explains why he refused to accept Naaman's money. He says that in this particular situation, it would not have been appropriate for him to receive money because it might have sent the wrong message. It might have caused confusion. And so Elisha says, you know what? No, I I won't accept it. Now, in other words, this doesn't mean that Elisha would never receive money or gifts or even payment for his work as a prophet. In fact, there's many examples throughout the Bible of priests, prophets, Levites, and in the New Testament, pastors and missionaries who were paid for their service to the people. In other words, there is a time and there is an appropriate place for ministers to receive money and gifts and even payment for their service to the people. But this was not the right time for that. Why? Because it would have sent the wrong message. It could have caused confusion or or caused people to draw the wrong conclusions if money had been involved. Here's why. Naaman is a brand new believer. He's been a believer for like 30 minutes at this point. He's like, I love the Lord. I want to walk with the Lord. Listen, there is a place and a time for financial giving and support. In fact, we always say here at our church that we view supporting the work of God through a local church as an act of worship. And that's something that's actually taught throughout the entire Bible. But listen, here with Naaman, he just became a believer, right? There's a time and a place for that. We can talk about that at some point. But right now, Elisha's like, look, Naaman, let's just, let, why don't you just receive this healing as a gift from God to you, a free gift of God's grace. Elisha wants Naaman to understand that what God wants from him first and foremost is not his money, but his heart. So Elisha says, Naaman, listen, you keep your money, but you give God your heart. You keep your money, but you give your life. The way that you respond to God's grace right now is by giving him your worship, by devoting your life to him, by making him your Lord. And we could talk about the other stuff later on. See, Naaman is about to go back home to Syria. And when he gets back home, people are going to say, what happened? You don't have leprosy anymore. Tell us the story. And Elisha says, you know what? I just don't want money to be part of that story. So even though he could receive this money, he chooses not to. I think this is really important because what we see here with Elisha is an example of someone who is being missionally minded. Elisha is being missionally minded. Throughout the Bible, we who follow Jesus are encouraged and instructed to be missionally minded people. What does that even mean? Well, to be missionally minded means that you don't just think about what you can do, right? You don't just ask the question of what you are allowed to do. Rather, you think about how your actions will affect your mission. If I do this, it's not a matter of if I can do it or if I I'm allowed to do. It's a matter of, will this help my mission or will it hinder the mission I've been given? Listen, Elisha had received a mission from God. His mission was he was called to be God's representative in that place for those people at that time. And listen, friends, you and I, if you're a Christian here today, you are called to a very similar ministry. You are called to be God's representative, to be an ambassador for Christ in your school, in your family, in your workplace. 
Paul the Apostle, he talks about this principle in uh, his letters to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And one of the things he says there that's really important is this. He says, look, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do that thing. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. Listen, there are things which are permissible, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily helpful. Right? And so we don't just want to ask what is, ex what is permissible. We want to ask what is helpful. You know, I, I think there are some things which, uh, which we as Christians, we need to think more in terms of being missionally minded. You know, here's the deal. Elisha could have received this money and he wouldn't have been breaking any rules. There were no rules that said that he couldn't do this. He wouldn't have been sinning. He wouldn't have, God wouldn't have been upset with him if he would have taken this money. And yet... He chose not to take it. Why? Because he didn't want to send the wrong message. He didn't want anybody to even possibly draw the wrong conclusions. In other words, he had the right to accept this money, but he was willing to set aside his rights for the sake of his mission and his calling, this greater purpose that God had called him to. You know, I think that sometimes we get a little bit too focused on our rights. This is what we talk about. I have the right to do this. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me I can't do that. That's my right. And so I'm going to do it because I have the right to do it. Well, listen, the, the heart of a person who is missionally minded is a person who is willing to sometimes set aside their rights for the sake of a higher calling, for a greater purpose, not just thinking about themselves, See, if Elisha was just thinking about himself, of course he would accept this money. Who doesn't want money, right? But Elisha's not just thinking about himself. He's not just thinking about his own comfort or enjoyment. He's thinking about Naaman. This guy, he's a brand new believer. He's a baby. I just want to help him get on his feet and get started. I don't want to send the wrong message. He's thinking about the people in Syria that Naaman's going to talk to. He doesn't want anybody to draw the wrong conclusions. He doesn't want the story to be tainted in any way by money being involved. So he says, even though I could do this, I'm not going to. I'm going to set aside my rights. You know, a lot of times, you know, I do this radio call-in show. And people will call in a lot and they'll ask, so, you know, like, will I go to hell if I do this, right? Basically, here's their goal. What is the exact limit of things I can do? What is the absolute most that I can do and not go to hell? Like as if, as if that is the standard, right? As much as you can possibly do and barely not go to hell, right? That, that seems to be the goal for some people. What am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? Make it really clear so that I can do as many of those things that I'm allowed to do as possible and not go to hell. Listen, I got to tell you, there has to be a better way to think than this. And the higher calling, the better way to think for us as Christians is not to be obsessed with, okay, what can I do? What can I do? Well, I don't want to make God mad, but I want to do everything I possibly can. Maybe he's annoyed, but not mad. The, the question is this, not just what can I do, not just what am I allowed to do, but what are the things which would best help me to grow in my relationship with God? And what are the things which would best help me to fulfill the calling that God has put on my life? Listen, for me as a Christian, one of the things I always say, one of my mantras that I always tell people is this. I want to be known for one controversy. 
the controversy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to be known for one controversy, the controversy of the cross of Calvary. In other words, when people hear my name, when they hear the name Nick Cady, my desire is that the first thing that would come to their mind is the name of Jesus. Not my, no, Nick Cady, I don't want them to think about, oh, uh, views on politics. I don't want them to think about views on the economy or fashion or the lack thereof or whatever you might determine or sports. You know what? When they hear my name, my hope and my desire, my goal is that they would, the first thing that comes to their mind is Jesus. That that is what I would be known for. That that is what I would be about. And to be missionally minded means that we're always looking to build bridges with people so that we can connect them to Jesus, so that we can point them to Jesus, so they can find hope and forgiveness and healing and eternal life in him. And what that means to be missionally minded for me and for you, it means this, that I don't want to do anything which would unnecessarily detract from that goal. Now, there are things which, which might be stumbling blocks for people necessarily, but I don't want to bring any unnecessary uh, hindrances or hurdles into the equation. My goal is to build bridges so that I can point people to Jesus. And Elisha, I see that same attitude with him here. He's missionally minded. He's willing to lay aside his rights and what he can do for the purpose of his mission and the concern for these people. He's willing to set aside his own comfort for their good. That's a great example of what it means to be missionally minded. Well, take a look at what Naaman does next. Verse 17. Naaman said, Well, if not, then please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of dirt or earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. Naaman wants to take two cartloads of dirt from Israel back to Syria. That's kind of weird. Like, why do you want Israeli dirt? There's actually a really interesting reason. The reason is this. If you, if you connect those two thoughts that he makes there in verse 17, you realize that what Naaman wants to do, he wants to take this dirt from Israel back to Syria, and he wants to build an altar to the Lord Yahweh in Syria, which is really cool, right? I mean, the guy's been a Christian or a believer, follower of God for like half an hour, and he's like, I got I to gotta build an altar to the Lord so I can worship him when I go back home. I got to build an altar to the Lord so I can introduce other people to this God who healed me of leprosy. But, but why does he take the dirt? Well, here's why. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, is just, there it is again. Okay, Exodus 20, verse 24. That's in the law of Moses. And what it says there is that when they built altars to the Lord in rural places, those altars were to be built of dirt or uncut rocks, raw rocks. Why? God didn't want the altars to be ornate. He didn't want them to uh, be, you know, made with gold and, and fancy workmanship. No, he said dirt and rocks. That's what you can make the altars out of because God wanted the focus to be on him and he wanted the altars to be functional but not to detract any attention away from, from him. And so Naaman, what is he doing? He wants to take this dirt back to Syria so he can build an altar out of it to Yahweh. Pretty cool, but it is a little bit weird, right? Like, they have dirt in Syria, right? Maybe save yourself the time and effort. Just use some Syrian dirt. You're going to be okay. There's nothing in the law that says that the dirt has to be from Israel. So why does he want to take Israeli dirt back to Syria? Well, there's a few options, right? Few possibilities. The first might be that he just wants to have a souvenir, right? A souvenir. People do this, right? You get like a vial of dirt from 
Israel or something like that. Maybe he just wants to have a souvenir because it's cool and he has all these people in carts with him. The other, the other possibility here is this. It could be that as kind of a holdover from his pagan upbringing and past, that he thinks there's something special about this dirt in particular, right? That there's some kind of supernatural force or something that exists in the dirt of Israel. You know, he's being a little superstitious. Now, if you asked him, he might say, I'm not superstitious, I'm just a little stitious. But either way, he, he's doing it, right? And so, um, but I would say this, and you can see this with Elisha, it's kind of like, hey, cut the guy some slack, right? He's been a believer for 30 minutes, he's gonna figure it out, give him some grace, give him some time, and, and just let this one slide because he's going to figure it out in time. Well, look at what Naaman says in verses 18 and 19. He says, also in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, that's the king, goes into the house of Rimmon, that's the Syrian god, to worship, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So apparently as part of his job, Naaman was sometimes required to accompany the king of Syria into the temple of the Syrian god Rimmon and help the king to bow down. And now Naaman, he's feeling conflicted. He's like, oh no, I, I really want to worship the Lord and the Lord alone, and I want to please the Lord, but there's this part of my job that I have to do sometimes. And so he asks, would God please pardon me and forgive me in advance for going into this temple and doing this thing which is part of my job? And Elisha says, go in peace, which is essentially saying, this is between you and God to work out in your heart. So you go do that. But he's also telling him that it is possible for him to do his job and do this thing in the temple without worshiping the God Rimen in his heart. So let's talk about vital signs real quick, okay? Vital signs. The Bible has a lot to say about how the outward actions and attitudes and behaviors of our lives are like vital signs that give an indication of what's going on in our hearts. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, we read that we are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you really repent, it will show itself in your actions. In the book of James, there's another example where we're told that real faith shows itself, it manifests itself, it expresses itself in actions. And so the litmus test of if your faith is real or not is if your actions match up to what you say you believe. The Apostle Paul in, in Galatians chapter 5, I mentioned this earlier, but he says, look at your life. And he gives two contrasting lists. He says there's the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit of God at work in your life, and that's contrasted with what he calls the works of the flesh. Here's what he says. The works of the flesh include immorality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, and the like. In contrast to that, the evidence of God's Spirit at work in your life, the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The point of these lists is for you to look at them and see if any of those hit you, hit you like a target. You say, oh, dang, that hit me. That, that, I'm doing that right now. Like, which of these lists better describes me and my actions, my behaviors right now? And if you see yourself in that first list, the, the list of the works of the flesh, 
It should get your attention. That's the purpose. It's, it's an indicator light that something's not right. Something needs your attention, and something needs to be taken care of. Jesus, he, he also said this in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. He said, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the fullness of the heart, you act. In other words, your actions are driven by what's inside of your heart. So we check our spiritual vital signs by examining our actions, our attitudes, and our behaviors. So what about Naaman? What do we see? What do his actions show us about what's going on in his heart? Well, let's just look at it real quick. First of all, the first thing he does is he forsakes his former idols, and he commits himself to worshiping the Lord alone. Okay, what's another vital sign we see with Naaman? Second is that he is thankful and he wants to express his thanks. Now, Elisha won't take his money, but he still wants to express it. The third thing is this. He's contrite. He desires to please God. He's asking God to forgive him for his sins. He cares what God thinks. Those are signs of life. Now, let's compare that with the second person in our story. We'll move through this part a little faster. This person's name is Gehazi. Now let me just remind you who Gehazi is. First of all, Gehazi is Elisha's servant. We, we're actually introduced to him in chapter 4. But he is also an Israelite. Now what that means that he's Elisha's servant and that he's an Israelite is simply this. That Gehazi spent his entire life surrounded by the things of God. Right? In, in a believing environment, an environment that believed in the word of God and the work of God. And working for Elisha, right, he's seen God do miracle after miracle. And so we're now going to compare Gehazi's actions with Naaman's actions. Let's read the rest of this section together. Verse 19, it says this, When Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, he said, See, my master has spared this man Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him, and I will get something from him. Right? He's like, so my, you know, Elisha, this guy was offering Elisha like $1.5 million. And Elisha's like, no thanks. He's like, What? free money, and Elisha doesn't want it, I'm going to go get some money. So check out what he does. Verse 21, Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, right, he's literally running to get this money. He's like, give me some of that money. I'm going to run after him. He finally catches up to the chariot, and Naaman's like, what's going on? Are you okay? And he says, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Verse 22, but my master sent me to say, there are these two guys. They just came from Ephraim. They're young, and they need some financial support. So maybe you could give us some of that money that you were going to give us, and I'll, I'll pass it on to those young guys. This is a totally made-up story, right? He's totally lying. He's just trying to get some money. Verse 23, and Naaman says, sure, okay, except two talents. A talent is a measurement of, of silver in this case. It's a lot of money. So he gives him two talents of silver, and he urged him. He said, tie up the talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and lay them on two of his servants. In other words, this was so much money that Gehazi couldn't carry it himself. He said, I'm going to send some servants with you to help you carry this because that's how much money it is. So Gehazi doesn't ask for all the money. He asks for just a little, and he gets some and more. 
And again, it's still a ton of money. It says, verse 24, when he came to the hill, he took them from their hands and he put them in his house and he sent the men away. He said, guys, I don't want Elijah to see this. And he obviously doesn't want anybody else to see it. So he like hides the money behind the hill. And then when he has the chance, he like sneaks it into his house. He's obviously worried because he knows that what he's doing is wrong. Verse 25, then he went in and stood before his master and Elisha said, where have you been, Gehazi? And Gehazi said, nowhere, right? Like he's totally busted and he's still lying about it. Verse 26, so Elisha said to him, did not my heart go, or yeah, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like the snow. Whoa, that was pretty intense. But think about the irony of this story comparing Naaman and Gehazi. Naaman, the pagan, the foreigner, the enemy of Israel, and yet he comes to God seeking to be healed of his leprosy, this incurable disease, which is a picture of sin. He humbles himself before God. He obeys God's word to him, and Naaman is healed, and in response, Naaman gives his life to the Lord. Gehazi, on the other hand, he's the ultimate insider. His entire life, he's been surrounded by the word of God and the work of God. And now, though, we see through his actions that there's an indication that something's wrong in his heart. And now leprosy, it clings to his body, symbolizing the sickness that is in his soul. We'll take a look at Gehazi's vital signs in comparison to Naaman's. We see in his life, we see greed, we see deceitfulness. We see a lack of repentance, a lack of contrition, even when he is confronted. And this brings us to the last part of our sentence, which is this. Vital signs can reveal what's going on beneath the surface so that you can act before the story is over. You see, Gehazi's leprosy was an outward sign of what was going on inside of his heart. By making Gehazi a leper, God was making his inner sickness visible on the outside. Now you might read that and you might think to yourself, this is terrible. This is awful. How could God do this? I mean, I realize he did something wrong, but to make him a leper, this incurable disease. But guys, remember, this is not the end of Gehazi's life, is it? And isn't there, is there not a God in Israel who cures lepers? He just did it. There's a prophet. In other words, Gehazi knows what he needs to do and where he needs to go in order to be healed of leprosy. The question is, will he do it? Will he do it? Will he turn to the Lord? Will he repent? Will he seek healing? Or will he die in leprosy because of his stubborn, hard heart? And do you know what he did? Me neither. We don't know. You know why? Because it doesn't tell us. In other words, it leaves the story open-ended. And I would propose to you this. I believe this story is left open-ended on purpose. And here's why. Because as you read this story, you and me, we look at this story, and we look at this, and it's so obvious to us that we know what Gehazi should do, what he ought to do. It's so obvious that you just want to, like, yell at him through the page. You're like, come on, Gehazi, repent. There's a God who heals lepers. You just saw him heal a leper. Don't be dumb, man. Turn to the Lord. Receive healing. Just humble yourself. Repent of what you did, and you can be healed. Don't die in your stubbornness. 
It's so easy for us to look at Gehazi, and we know what he should do. It's so clear. It's so obvious. But here's the question, and here's why this story is left open-ended. Because that same question needs to be answered by you in your life as well. It's really easy to see. I know what Gehazi needed to do. But will you do it yourself? Will you do it? Will you humble yourself in repentance before God in those areas of your life where the vital signs show that something's not good, something's not healthy, there's a reason for concern? Will you humble yourself before the God who heals lepers and receive mercy and grace and healing today or not? You see, you would look at Gehazi and you'd say, knowing what he knows, he should turn to the Lord. And I would propose to you this. Knowing what you know, you too should turn to the Lord. And the question is, will you? See, the good news with Gehazi is that his story is not over yet. He's not dead yet. There's still hope. And friends, the same is true for you. If you see Gehazi-like tendencies in your life, if you see the spiritual vital signs in your life indicate that there's a reason for concern, good news your story isn't over yet. There's still time to act, and there is time to turn to the God who heals lepers. We don't know how Gehazi ended up responding to this, but the question is this, how will you respond in this same situation? Knowing what you know, will you turn in humility with repentance to the God who heals lepers? You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says this, Examine yourself to see whether you're really in the faith. Test yourselves to see if you're really in the faith. In other words, don't assume that just because you grew up in a religious household or a religious setting, don't assume that, that you're really in the faith. Gehazi grew up in a religious setting. He worked in a religious job, and he assumed that he was fine, but he wasn't. And we shouldn't assume either. Instead, we're called to examine ourselves, test ourselves whether we're really in the faith. How do you do that? How do you test yourself to see if you're really in the faith? Here's how. By taking a good, honest look at your spiritual vital signs, the fruit of your life, actions, attitudes, behaviors present in your life, whether they give you reasons for confidence or whether they give you reason for concern. And hey, look, if they give you reason for concern, I've got good news for you today. Your story is not over. There is a God who heals lepers, and if you will humble, himself, humble yourself before him in repentance, he will heal you. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came, and he lived a life of perfect obedience to God, the life of perfect obedience to God that we have failed to live, and he died a sacrificial death in your place. When he hung on the cross, the sickness that plagues your souls was transferred to him so that you could be healed, and he conquered death and the grave so that you too can have eternal life in him. The way to receive that gift is by putting your faith, putting your trust in Jesus and what he did. And I, I got to tell you this, that is not a one-time thing that you do in your life one time and then you're done. It's not a box that you check and say, done, got it, I did that once already. No, 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 it's a way of life. It's a continual thing, a process that week in and week out, you look to Jesus and it has implications for every area of your life as you look to him and you trust in him that what he did was enough to justify you and save you. You look to him. And so that's what we're going to do right now. We're, we're taking this message. We're considering these things. And we're going to take communion together right now. So please bow your heads with me and we'll pray and take communion together. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. 
For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.